0: You're all familiar, I'm sure, with what Ezekiel saw in chapter 37. He saw the dry bones, right? The Lord took him to a valley full of dry bones and said, son of man, can these bones live? And he said, Lord, you know, and he says, prophesy to the bones, and he prophesied, and they began to rattle and come together, and then flesh and sinew came over them, and there was no breath in them, so he said, prophesy to the breath, and he did, and life came into them. And we love that story, and it's used as an as illustration so often because it's just so perfect. God can bring everything that is dead back to life, can't he? Now, that's an application of that passage, that God showed Ezekiel a picture of God bringing dead things back to life. It's a good application. What we want to deal with tonight is what is the interpretation of that prophecy we're not going to focus so much on Ezekiel 37, but I'm using it as an illustration here. Does that represent Israel's return from exile when they were in Babylon? That's when Ezekiel was prophesying. Does it speak of Israel becoming a nation again in 1948, when they were brought from all the nations of the world and brought back together? Does it represent the kingdom of heaven that will be fulfilled when Christ returns? Could it possibly refer to all of these? That kind of question is an interpretive Question. We know what the application is. Yes, God is able to bring dead things back to life. But what was Ezekiel prophesying about? What is the interpretation? And this is a critical part of sound Bible study, being able to interpret prophecy properly. And that's really what this weekend is all about. And we have to do this because there are two extremes that we want to warn against tonight when it comes to. Bible prophecy, especially end times prophecy or eschatology. When you hear the word eschatology, eschatos in Greek means last. So you hear eschatology, think the end of the world, (laughs) the end times. So the first error, you see one man who handles the passages carelessly. He's, He's tying every twist and turn of the news cycle to some obscure Bible passage that nobody's ever heard of before. But then, on the other hand, you've got people who ignore prophecy entirely. Whether that's out of intimidation oh, it's just too much, I I can never get that. Whether that's because it's embarrassment because your friends at work make fun of the Left Behind series or something like that. Ah, That's just unknowable. Did God even want us to understand? Hey, both of those extremes are unacceptable. It's not good Bible study. And I know there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of emotion surrounding this subject. But we are going to, this weekend and tonight, be equipped on how we interpret Bible prophecy. So let's begin by looking at four different prevailing methodologies that we see. How you interpret prophecy, meaning the the principles you use, is important to know. Because you may be hearing a pastor or reading a book or a podcast. You need to know what is this person's methodology. How do they think you ought to understand the Bible? The first one... Is literal interpretation. This perspective assumes that the prophets spoke of actual events to be fulfilled. Wasn't just poetry, this was actual events to be fulfilled. Scripture ought to be interpreted according to the normal rules of language. So when it says a thousand years, we mean think it means a thousand years. So properly understood within the appropriate genre, accommodating all figurative language, Bible prophecy speaks of real events that will come to pass. The second is allegorical interpretation. This is the belief that prophecies teach symbolic truth only, not literal truth. It's not trying to say that Jesus will necessarily set up a thousand-year kingdom. It's, it's referring to the fact that life in Christ is abundant and wonderful, and it just goes on and on, and the Lord will never give up on you. That's an example. This is not the same thing as a literal interpreter recognizing symbolism. Right? The Bible talks about a seven- or eight-headed dragon in the book of Revelation. right? That's symbolic. We believe that. But we believe, as literal interpreters, that the symbol is communicating actual reality. That it's standing for something real. The allegorical view will look for a moral or spiritual lesson only. This is very common in certain Reformed circles, uh, certain high church church circles as well, especially related to Israel. And when it says Israel, or Jews, or Ephraim, or Judah, or Jerusalem, it means the church. It means just God's people in general. It's it's allegorical. So in this view, Daniel and Revelation are not providing us a timeline and a picture of what will happen in the future. It's a symbolic template that you can apply to any time of persecution only. Number three is personal interpretation. And this is kind of something new, but also something old. It's kind of caught the postmodern wave and has, has taken root in certain corners of the church. You maybe have heard of something called Reader Response Theory. It's very boring, but it impacts your life, so you need to hear about this. This is the belief that anything written does not have meaning on its own. It doesn't matter what Shakespeare said. What matters is how the reader responds to what Shakespeare said. So if you're ever wondering why certain people are trying to cancel certain books as offensive when you look at it and you say there's nothing offensive in here, that doesn't matter to a postmodernist. What matters is if they were offended, then therefore it is offensive. So let's apply that to the Bible now. It really doesn't matter what Isaiah or Ezekiel intended to say. What matters is how do you respond to it? It's unimportant what the authors meant. What matters is how we read it right now. And this is where you get a lot of deconstruction that comes in. A classic one that you hear is Hosea used his unfaithful wife as a symbol for unfaithful Israel. Well, right there, you can see the patriarchy at work as Hosea wrote this down. And you can break it apart. And really, really his unfaithful wife is the hero of this story for being sexually liberated because you've got to see through. That's where this can go. But... This methodology of personal interpretation can also be used by well-meaning believers who fail to do the hard work and interpret prophecy and just read it to mine nuggets of motivation. I like this verse. It sounds good, so I'm going to use it for my life. And that's the only thing that we see in the prophet. I can't understand revelation. It's too hard, but I really like this verse here. Well, you're essentially committing the same error, although you're certainly not committing the same kind of wickedness as somebody that says the Bible means whatever you want it to. And the fourth, this is a term that I've coined because I haven't seen it coined anywhere else, limited interpretation. This is similar to postmodern thought and also very dissimilar. This person would say, we can understand what Ezekiel was trying to say. He was trying to write to his exiled people that God is going to take good care of them. Does it have anything to say about the future? Maybe. I don't know. I can't understand that. So, what about what the New Testament thought? Didn't they say that this was fulfilled? Well, all that tells us is what the New Testament writers thought about the prophet, not what the prophet actually meant. And it leads to what I call prophetic agnosticism that it might be prophetic, it probably is prophetic, but I can't get into his head to know exactly what he meant. So, analyzing the details of a passage would be inappropriate. These are the people that like to make fun of charts. Oh, you're going to chart the end times? You're going to chart what Bible prophecy says like you can understand it? Well, yes. Don't you? Well, I know that Jesus is coming back, but I don't know if I can get into all those details. And you say, well, look, this is what he said. But do you really think that Ezekiel or Isaiah really knew that that's what they were saying? So how can we go beyond that? It really limits the amount of interpretation you're allowed to apply. And many people... I, this is coming up. I'm seeing this. They kind of breathe a sigh of relief when they find this way of looking at it, because it sets them free from having to sort through these big prophetic books that are confusing and hard to understand. We can set eschatology aside as long as I know the big blocks: Jesus is coming back, nobody knows when, we're all going to go to heaven when we die. Then it doesn't really matter. Well, those are four ways of looking at it, and they all have some value. Each one does, but they all have their own dangers. And it is the first one that should be our default position. And it's certainly the one that we take here. Literal interpretation. And I say this not only because it's able to accommodate each of the lessons of the other method, but it's the method that the Bible uses itself. And I'm going to defend that. So let's take a second look at our definition of literal interpretation. This is where we're going to dig down. This is how different people inspect prophecy This is how we do it. And this is the best way to do it. And I'm going to explain that to you now. I would say most prophecy teachers you've heard of that take the time to explain and expound prophecy and who talk about the Antichrist and so on, most of them believe in literal interpretation. Because if they don't, they usually are not going to spend a lot of time explaining prophecy, period. But it does have its detractors. So let's look at this again. This is the belief that predictive scripture will be literally, perhaps a better word would be actually fulfilled. Scripture ought to be interpreted according to the normal rules of language. There's not some secret meaning hiding underneath it that you've got to uncover. God used words because we know how to read and interpret words. So, these prophecies may have had an immediate use, but we know that in many cases, there is an end times interpretation that we ought to seek to understand. For example, here's one that we hear a lot. Revelation is a big, long, confusing book full of symbols and signs. All it's really trying to teach us is that Jesus wins in the end, and you ought to endure through persecution. Does Revelation teach that? Oh, yes, absolutely. Right? He who endures to the end will be saved. How many times does Jesus say that in the book? And that's, that's good, that's important. But we can't stop there. Because Revelation 1.19 says that I am telling you the things that are to take place after this. That's a huge purpose statement of the book of Revelation, is so that you can know what's coming. And is it shrouded in symbol and figurative language? Yes, of course. But the Lord gave us revelation in order to reveal something. Fancy that. Now, an accusation we hear is, oh, so you take every symbol and sign rigidly. You believe that when it says, you know, that God covers us with his feathers, that God has actual chicken wings. Well, well no. Literal interpretation, remember, is the regular use of language. When you come across a symbol, you treat it like a symbol. But you know that it's talking about something real. For example, in Revelation 13, it says that a great beast came up out of the sea. Now, it is not literal interpretation to believe that one day a giant monster is going to climb out of the ocean, like Godzilla or something like that. We believe that that symbol is pointing to a figure called the Antichrist, who is a tyrant that rules in the last years. So you need to to get that. It's not saying we take every sign and symbol rigidly, but it means that we interpret them like you would normally interpret words. There's not something secret to learn. We need to use sound Bible study. Take genre into account. Take figurative speech into account. The context matters. Intertextuality. How does Daniel and Zechariah affect Revelation and Matthew, for example? The historical background. What was going on when Isaiah wrote this that might help us understand what he was getting at? and just good old common sense. Properly understood in context, we believe that prophecy provides actual revelation of the end times. That's literal interpretation. Now I'm going to defend this a little bit. I'm going to give three biblical reasons why we believe that. Because it's all good to say that, but there have been many eminent godly Bible teachers throughout church history and today that have interpreted it differently. So why this way? Well, I believe because this is how the Bible interprets prophecy. Let's look at three different ways to defend that. Look at the prophets from their own days. This is a common accusation. The prophets never would have thought that we'd be picking apart their prophecies and pulling out numbers and dates and things like that. That's simply not what the Bible says. This is our first defense. The prophets knew that their words went beyond their own context. You read through Jeremiah, for example, and it's very plain. He's talking about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and the fall of Jerusalem. But then like halfway through the chapter, all of a sudden we're talking about stars falling from heaven. And we're talking about Israel being brought from the ends of the earth and Gentiles are in there somewhere. And like, where did we go, Jeremiah? We were just transported to another level here. And what the Bible tells us is that the prophets knew that this was happening when they prophesied. 1 Peter 1, verse 12, talking about salvation. He says, of our salvation, the prophets inquired and searched carefully what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So they were inquiring and searching. The prophets were seeking God to understand what, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was talking about. So Isaiah, for example, gives Isaiah 53, right? He was bruised for our transgressions and upon him was placed the iniquity of us all. Isaiah says, Lord, when is that for? I know you gave me that word. When is that for? And Peter finishes that verse, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering, which means the prophets did not always understand their own words. Now, if you believe the prophets were just making up their prophecies, then okay, of course you're not going to think that. But if we believe that when Isaiah said the Lord appeared to me and said, if you actually believe that the Lord appeared to him and said, they did not always understand their words. Peter tells us they learned that some of the things they said did not apply to their own time. They applied to our time. This reminds us, as 2 Peter 1 verse 20 tells us, that the Holy Spirit moved these men to write. There is dual authorship of the Bible. It wasn't just the human author. It was the Holy Spirit superintending the process and using them. That is how the prophets were able to write beyond themselves. So that's our first thing. We are free to read the prophetic passages with an eye to the future, not just the immediate context. Because Peter tells us, That's exactly what happened. Number two, our second defense here. Jesus expected his disciples to recognize fulfilled prophecy as it happened. In Luke 24, this is the road to Emmaus after Jesus has risen from the dead. And he's kind of pulling a prank on his disciples by not telling them who he is. Luke 24, I'll read verses 25 and 27. He said, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus rebukes his disciples for not realizing that when the prophets talked about David's soul not seeing corruption, they were talking about him. And he gives them this Bible study from the prophets prophesying what was going to happen in his life. The prophecies about the Messiah Jesus were fulfilled literally. He was literally born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He was literally a son of David, Isaiah 11, verse 10. He died for our sins, literally, Isaiah 53, verse 5. He literally rose from the dead, Psalm 16.10. Not only that, But Jesus expected those who had read these prophecies to be ready. In Luke chapter 2, we meet two people who were ready. When Jesus, as a little baby, was brought into the temple to be circumcised, Simeon and Anna recognized him and started telling everybody. That's where Simeon, very famously said, Now I can die, O Lord. Now let your servant depart. And Anna began to tell everybody. So some people knew... When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Luke 19, 42, he said, if only you had known this, your day, the things which make for your peace, they were celebrating. He was weeping because while they thought, oh, here comes our Messiah, he knew they were missing it, but they should have known. We'll get into this a little later. Daniel had given them the day when this would happen. He expected those who lived in the first century to be ready because they had read the prophets. A certain Bible teacher not long ago very famously said, if they didn't get the prophecies about Jesus the first time, why do we think we'll get them the second time? Completely missing the fact that Jesus rebuked them for missing it the first time. And we ought to do better. If the first advent prophecies were fulfilled literally, should we not expect the same thing for the second advent, the second coming of Christ? So number one, the prophets knew they were writing beyond themselves. Number two, Jesus expected his disciples to recognize prophecy as it happened. And number three, the Bible holds up predictive prophecy as evidence of God's power and wisdom. Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is a running theme, especially in the center of Isaiah, where the Lord is lifting himself up above the idols of the nations because he says, I can tell you the future. Can Baal do that? No, of course not, because he's a block of wood that you carved out one day. I can make the future happen as I declare it. No man, no demon has the power to foretell the future. That's why God tells us not to go to the astrologers and the witches and things like that. Because he says, I'm the Lord that tells you. So if we say prophecy is not not about the future, we gotta stop looking for these fulfillments, is to strip much of the reason for them being given in the first place. Which is that we are the only ones who serve a God who is able to predict the future and then cause it to come about. The Bible holds that up as evidence. Fulfilled prophecy proves that our God is the living God. Why do we hold the literal interpretation? For three biblical reasons. Number one, the prophets knew their words had a future fulfillment. Number two, Jesus expected his followers to see that literal fulfillment in his life. And number three, God's foreknowledge is a demonstration of his power and Godhead. For that reason, we stand on strong biblical footing when we insist on the literal interpretation of prophecy. You really believe literally that's going to happen? Well, that's what happened in the New Testament. And if I'm wrong, I'm willing to to die on this hill. If God gets me in trouble in heaven for taking his word a little too seriously, I'm I'm willing to deal with that. Let's look at an example of what I'm talking about here. Let's see this in action. We'll just do this quickly. If you read the book of Micah, Micah chapter four is talking about the coming glory of Israel, but he also acknowledges the fact that it's not very glorious right now. Micah wrote about the same time as Isaiah, and Isaiah didn't have a lot of happy things to say about his own day. But then you get to Micah chapter five, verse two, and he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So if you read that prophecy, out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, will come the ruler of Israel. Let's look at the different methods of interpretation and see how how they would approach it. Well, a postmodernist, or coming at it with personal interpretation, doesn't really care why Micah said what he did. They only care about what it means to me. They say, well, doesn't this remind us that that God always shines a light in the darkness, and even though you're small, God can help you do big things? All that's true. That's all legitimate application, but it doesn't say anything to the interpretation, as in, what was Micah talking about? Micah, you know, If Micah were to say, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler in Israel. That's so great, Micah. God always makes a way when it seems like there's no way. He's like, no, I'm trying to tell you something. Out of this city will come a guy who's going to rule over this country. So we've got to look at the interpretation, not just the application. Limited interpretation would only concern itself with the general thrust of this passage and not concern itself with the future orientation. they'll say, look, what was Micah trying to do? He's trying to stir up his downtrodden people by reminding them of the glory days of David and that maybe those days will come again someday. They might talk in depth about the heartbreak of the exile and how that ripped the Jewish nation apart and how they needed Davidic hope. And they would talk about the belief in the Messiah. And they might look at how the New Testament uses that hope and applies it to Christ. But all along, you're wondering, like, but do you really believe that that's true? It's legitimate Bible study, but it's limited if you're not gonna take it to the end and say Micah prophesied something in the common use of that word, which is to tell the future. Now, literal and allegorical interpretation, this is funny. They agree on the interpretation of the first part of this verse. Bethlehem means Bethlehem. An actual literal Bethlehem. There was an actual ruler whose goings forth were from of old, named Jesus, who was literally born, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. But then when you talk to that who shall be ruler over Israel stuff, you get a divergence. The allegorical interpretation says that he's not actually going to rule over Israel. Israel's been set aside anyway. He's talking about the church. We're not looking for Jesus to rule like some politician on the earth. He means that he's going to be head of the church. But a a literal interpreter looks at this and says, the whole first two thirds of this verse was taken literally. And now we're going to sidestep when we get to the one that hasn't been fulfilled yet. We see the New Testament example as definitive here. If Bethlehem was literal and the ruler himself was literal, we expect him to literally rule over literal Israel one day. That's what Revelation chapter 20 says, right? That he set up a kingdom for a thousand years from Jerusalem. But it's funny that those will say, yes, we're with you on the first part, but you can't honestly believe that it's going to happen that way. Well, consider this. How do you think Micah's audience would have heard it? If he's prophesying to a bunch of oppressed, invaded Hebrews and says one day David's son will rise and rule this land again, do you think they step back and said, now what does that mean? How does that apply to you? How does it apply to me? It means that we're finally going to get Babylon out of here is how it applies to me. Looking for a king to come. So you can talk all you want about honoring the context and honoring the time of Micah. That's how they would have read it. And that's exactly what we should do as well. Literal interpreters are often accused of pressing the text too far. And fair enough, that can happen. You know, not, Not every little detail needs to be parsed, for example. We can even be accused of carnality. You're looking for a fleshly interpretation. You're not doing the the spiritual work to find out the spiritual meaning behind it. But I say that if God has truly spoken to his prophets, then those prophecies will be truly fulfilled. Amen? I think that interpreting the Bible prophecy literally is the biblical method. This is the way they did it in Scripture. And that should be our example. I will say briefly, because we're talking about interpretive methods, and Pastor Troy is going to talk more about this in a little bit here. If you use literal interpretation consistently, meaning if you're going to apply this methodology to every part of Scripture, not just the ones that are obvious, this will drive you to a dispensational, futurist, premillennial view. If you don't know what that means... Dispensational means we believe that God has had different ways of working with people throughout history, all culminating in Christ. Futurist, meaning we expect the prophecies that have not been fulfilled to be fulfilled someday. And premillennial, meaning we believe that these things are going to happen before Jesus actually comes and sets up a millennial kingdom. If you interpret the Bible literally, you're going to come to those conclusions. And that is not a boast, If you read those that are defending allegorical interpretation or another, they will admit, if you take it literally, you're going to end up at some kind of dispensationalism. Now, they don't do that, but they acknowledge that if you use this method, that's where you end up. Because obviously, when it says seven-year tribulation, seven-year tribulation. When it says thousand years, we believe thousand years. Jerusalem means Jerusalem. We take the word seriously. And there's differences of opinion over how that will play out, but that's where it leads us. And to me... That gives a strong indication of the accuracy of those views. If we interpret the Bible the way the New Testament authors interpreted the Bible, we end up believing in the pre trib rapture and the premillennial view and dispensationalism. That says to me those things are probably right. Not because we like those ideas, but because we insist on interpreting it the Bible's way. So that's our methodology of interpretation. We take the Bible literally. That when they used words, those words mean what words usually mean. That doesn't mean it's not hard to understand or that you can't have differences of opinion. But at least in our approach to the scripture, we can be confident that we're doing it God's way. And there are certain conclusions that you are inevitably driven to if you're going to interpret the Bible this way. Therefore, if that is how we're going to do this, there are a few implications that give us some very strong lessons for us to take home tonight. If this is how we're going to do this, There's a few lessons for us to learn and this is how we're going to end this session tonight. If we believe in literal interpretation, three things that we learn from this. Number one, you've got to do the work. If we believe in literal interpretation, it does two things. It expands and contracts the responsibility of the interpreter. It expands it by saying, if you believe this is God's word and you can understand it, then you need to take the time to understand it For some reason, we can tend to think that Bible study shouldn't be difficult. And if it's difficult, we're doing it wrong. Peter said that some of the things Paul wrote were hard to understand. So you're in good company if you've ever been like, I have no idea what he's getting at here. I know what these words mean. I just don't know what they mean in that order. It expands your responsibility. You've got to take the time but it also contracts your responsibility. So literal interpretation expands your responsibility by telling you to go do the work, but it also contracts it because it limits your influence over what the text might mean. Literal interpretation grounds your Bible study to the Bible. If you focus on context and being consistent, you will be less tempted to chase the flavor of the week and call it prophecy. I'm just going to say it. You have no right to project your opinions or your politics or your culture on the Bible and get some verses to support it and call that eschatology. It happens way too often that we we use one Bible verse and then we spend an hour and a half talking about the news. It's important to know this. Literal interpretation brings you to the place to, to give you one little lesson here to know what's a possibility from prophecy, and what's a certainty? We spend way too much time talking about the possibilities and not enough about the certainties. For example, what is certain? It is certain that the Antichrist will give everybody a mark on their hand or their forehead to buy or sell. That's certain. We know that's going to happen. What's possible is that as some, like Tim LaHaye have suggested, is that this is some kind of subdermal microchip. But the Bible never says the Antichrist will give everybody a subdermal microchip. We just see that kind of technology and think, man, it sure looks possible. But if you then stop talking about the certainty, and now all you're obsessing over is, you know, people putting trackers in their dogs and cats. And you talk more about that than you do scripture. Well, we've we've gotten off somewhere, haven't we? Bible study is hard work. And y'all, prophecy is probably the hardest part of the Bible to understand and get it right, just because there's so much in the first place to try and put it all together. It can be done and you should try, but but when you do that, you need to use good sources. You need to avoid sensationalism. There are so many people, you guys, you know that nobody checks your, your credentials to have a, a blog, don't you? Like when you wanna post something online, there's no application process. Like. Have you been a pastor? Where did you study this? Where did you, you know, you, you can just get going and call yourself a prophecy teacher. You need to take the time to find good sources, good godly people. We are bound by the Bible alone. You've got to do the hard work. That's number one. Number two, our implication. If limited interpretation is true, we've got to believe the Bible. The trend right now, especially among my age group, is towards that limited interpretation. Especially, oddly enough, I'm not quite sure why, in Old Testament studies. Stop pressing the details as long as you get the gist, as long as you know how they read it, it doesn't really matter if there's any kind of future application or interpretation. Now, this has helped. This has helped in certain places. Because it can curb the worst excesses of that first thing we talked about. Being way too sensational with it. But it starts to go too far when you're focusing on the immediate function of prophecy, right? Revelation teaches us to endure persecution. That's true. But if you don't consider the interpretation and the power of the Holy Spirit behind it, you're missing out. Folks like this especially can be very suspicious of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, because they'll say, when, when Malachi said, Out of Egypt I called my son, he had no idea that Jesus was going to be in Egypt. So why would Matthew use this verse? It's like, but the Holy Spirit inspired both of them. Yeah, well, maybe, but it's really, really it's not about that. You, see, you get into this prophetic agnosticism. Or you can just, even with less, less thought into it, you just say, You know what? It's so confusing, I don't want to bother with it. We can get cynical. I know several people that don't want to talk about end times prophecy just because they're embarrassed by some of their brothers and sisters that go nuts with it. That everything from like, I don't know, like Attila the Hun has been a sign of the coming of Christ. Everything you know, all the way up through World War II and then the Vietnam War and then 9-11 and then Obama's election and Obamacare and then Trump's election and all his policies and then the COVID vaccine and everything that's in the news somehow gets tied to scripture. And folks like me sit back and watch and go, you've said this over and over again and you don't even remember what you said last time. So you know what? I don't really want to touch this one. I don't want to talk about that. Well, that's not good either. The solution is not to abandon eschatology. It's to pick it up and do it right. Don't ever look to other people to show you what you should and shouldn't be doing in the church. You look to God. There are lots of people that abuse preaching too, but we're not about to stop that. We don't stop doing something because it's abused. We take a stand and say, no, we're going to do it right. So there are those who go too far and get a little off in their eschatology, but at the very least they respect the fact that God has authored the Bible and believe that we can understand him, and that's what we need to grasp hold of. Respect the fact and rejoice in the fact that God has spoken, and let the word dictate your positions on things. Even if we end up with some strange teammates along the way, if the word got us there, we're okay with that. So we do the hard work, we believe the Bible, and number three, we serve the Lord. This ought to turn our hearts to worship, as we said, because our God is the only God who can foretell the future. I I didn't look this up. I want to say it was Justin Martyr, one of the early defenders of the Christian faith in the early centuries, was saved when he saw how Jesus had fulfilled all of these Old Testament prophecies, and he stood up and became a stalwart defender of the faith. Look at Paul in Romans chapter 11. He talks about the plan that God has for Israel. And he says, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Look at how he did all this. We had no idea and he did it. But if you look, it was there all along and we missed. God is so big. God is so great. True prophetic study should not lose Jesus in the mix, but it should cultivate awe for the Lord and the God whom we serve. And because we're serving Christ by studying prophecy, we ought to be Christ-like as we study prophecy. Amen? It's Way too easy to get so angry. Why do we get so angry when we talk about Bible prophecy? The whole point is that Jesus wins in the end. (laughs) And above that, James said, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if all the time we're talking about the end times, we're spitting mad about people, well, that's not righteous. Even if your conclusions are correct, you're certainly not being winsome. And you're not going to bring anybody to faith in Christ, which is the whole point of it anyway. You get one group ranting about the fact that all these sheep don't see that the new world is being unfolded right in front of them, just like Jesus said, what's wrong with all of you? And then you got this other group, it's like, look at these conspiracy theorists. All they do is think that the end is coming and we don't even know. Jesus has been waiting 2,000 years. What's the big deal? Can you stand these people? And just shots get fired back and forth. And they may both have a point, but hey, is that Christ like? Is that how Jesus conducted himself? There's a lot to discuss, and there's a lot to learn, and there's a lot to debate because there's differences of opinion. But we know the most important things already, which is that Jesus is coming back, no one knows exactly when, and we've all got to be ready. And since we all should be able to agree on those things, we can show kindness and charity as we discuss secondary matters like this. Because if we're worshiping the Lord by studying these things, we ought to study them in his character and the way he taught us, amen? So the best way to interpret Bible prophecy is to default to literal interpretation. Words mean what they usually mean when you're reading the Bible. God wants us to understand. That's why he used words in the first place. In context, properly understood, God was trying to reveal the actual future to his people. And that just sends chills up your spine, doesn't it? God's like, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. And then I'm going to go out and do it. It's like a boxer standing at the the weigh-in telling this is exactly what I'm going to do to you tomorrow. And then he goes out and he just does it. Because you can't stop me. I can tell you everything I'm going to do, Satan. And you can't stop me. Because I'm almighty God. So we do the hard work to arrive at solid, not speculative conclusions. Because as Ecclesiastes 3.11 reminds us, God has placed eternity into the heart of man. We can know God, but he reminds us, No one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. We're not going to understand every detail, but we can know. So if we avoid sensationalism and cynicism, we will not only learn more of God's glorious plan for the end of the world, we will become more like his beloved son in the process